The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Barbara Brown Taylor, a best-selling author, teacher, and Episcopal priest. In 2014, Time Magazine included her in its annual list of most influential people. 2015, she was named Georgia Woman of the Year. 2016, she received the President's Medal at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. And her 14th book, Holy Envy, was released by Harper One in March of this year, 2019. So you're very busy, Barbara, with a couple of years off here. And (laughs) there's a review of Holy Envy in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. So I'm glad you caught your breath and you can talk to us for a little bit. Welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami. You know I love you. I love you too. So obviously the listener knows that we're friends. Yes. Uh, So, uh, but we don't want to go into that. You know, we're going to try to keep this on a book level. Holy Envy is a really fascinating book. The full title is Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. And that's really what I want to talk to you about. But before we get into that, I, you know, I, I mean, I've heard you speak several times and you don't waste words. I mean, you really craft what you're going to say very carefully. So on your website, you say, you introduce yourself and you say, hello, I'm Barbara Brown Taylor. I say things you're not supposed to say. So I have to ask you, what are the things you're not supposed to say and why are you saying them? <laughs> I think compared to people in my peer group like Nadja Boltz Weber, or if I reach for Anne Lamott, I'm just so tame. I'm, I am so tame. I have no business putting that on a website. But I, I think I, I put it there because after I wrote a book called Leaving Church, which was my kind of most hard book to write, people wrote afterwards and said, oh, God, I'm so relieved you said that because I would never have said it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what gave me the idea that that probably my entire vocation as a speaker and writer is to say things other people want to say, but for one reason or another have decided with better judgment not to say. So, Do you ever get the sense that you've said something that they want to say and they didn't even know they wanted to say it? Oh, now that's a great idea. Uh, I hope so. I Wouldn't that be wonderful? No, usually I think of myself as an afterthought, but I'd love to think <laughs> I get ahead of the thought. Yeah, I think at, I think at, at moments... You are ahead of the thought that you're really a pioneer, even if you want to see yourself as uh, one of the crowd. I think I think you you're really ahead of the masses, if you can put it that way. So, in the book, you talk about holy envy. I mean, that's the title of the book, and you say that it alerts you to things 
and other religions that have become neglected in your own. So give us an example of what you found in another tradition and why, if you know, or, or maybe how is a better way to put it, it was neglected in your own, and your own being Christianity, or at least the Episcopal Church. Sure. I live in a Protestant culture, which means everyone around me thinks Christian history went straight from the disciples to the 16th century, you know, with no stop-offs in between. So a lot of what got neglected is in, you know, those 1500 years that Protestantism more or less forgot about. So for instance, when I um, go to a Buddhist uh, Dharma hall and I sit seeking the wisdom within instead of the wisdom coming from the mouth of someone else. You know, I'm reminded of the great contemplative Christian traditions, which have largely gotten lost in a lot of words. So I'm happy to say I think they're being roundly rediscovered right now. Or when I go to a masjid on a Friday and I look at the embodied prayer of the people around me, I remember that dance and movement, you know, were at different times part of Christian tradition whether it's a little shake or two-step, you know, or something more elegant. So over and over again, as I visit the neighbors, I find things that have gotten lost in my tradition. Though I should say, I also find things that are not present in my tradition. And that seems just as important to find things to envy that I can't have, um, but that I can admire and that make me a better neighbor. So let's talk about you can't have. You mentioned in the book, uh, a friend, a mutual friend, Professor Paul Knitter. He wrote a book called Without Buddha, I Couldn't Be a Christian. And mm-hmm. he uses the term double belonging. So in his case, it means being both uh, a Catholic and a Tibetan Buddhist. And I get this from the inside. I mean, I've known him since I was in rabbinical school. So in my own situation, I think it's more than double belonging. I mean, I'm, I belong in, in a Zen center, in you know, Islam, in, in Qigong practice, and Taoism, and Vedanta Hinduism, Freemasonry, Theosophy. I mean, I, <laughs> I have all kinds of connections. I'm completely hyphenated. So how does double belonging play out in your life? Do you see yourself as, you know, Episcopal slash something? Oh, I think I'm multiply hyphenated too. And I think anyone who thinks about it is. I mean, really, in, I, I can put that challenge out there. Almost anyone I know is, but they haven't thought about it or claimed it yet. So I suppose if I were to hyphenate, I'd hyphenate Buddhist as many, many Christians do, because it it sort of fills out the other side of Christian talkativeness and evangelism and some of our more obnoxious features to just sit down and shut up for a while and, and let reality deliver us into the hands of what we can trust instead of leading with what people have to trust, even if it doesn't make any sense. So so that is a kind of complementary tradition for me. Uh, it was Laurie Patton, now president of um, Middlebury College, you know, who taught me that uh, adopting a hyphenated identity can help keep you honest, at least to have a dear friend in another tradition can keep you honest in your own. And I, I love that and trust that. So so I would lean that way. And then I admire people like you and Mirabai Starr and lots of other people who I think exemplify what I would call interspirituality. And you with comfort and ease and knowledge can inhabit, you know, a lot of different communions at once. Is that too Christian a word? But, you know, communities, communities of belonging or faith or practice. 
and I'm, I'm sort of, I have a foot in one and a foot in the other. I'm, I'm still hanging on to thinking that depth in one tradition enables me to recognize depth in another. But I also admire the inter people like you and Mirabai. Yeah, I know there's, I mean, there is a general consensus among a lot of people, I guess that's what consensus means, that it's better to go deep in one than, you know, you have a foot in one, a foot in the other. I'm an octopus. I've got tentacles in a, in a zillion different places. Though, I mean, Judaism is my root tradition. I mean, that's, I study the Bible every day. It's not that I study the Bhagavad Gita every day, mm-hmm. but it's it's practice more mm-hmm. than allegiance to a tribe or a tradition that that I think is is where the depth issue comes in. But I want to ask you, I want to share with you my own sense of holy envy. Because uh, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I go to all these places, I don't feel envious. I think they're all human things and, and they're just part of my inheritance as a human being. But one thing sticks out and I see it's lack in mainstream Judaism and in mainstream Protestantism, and that's Mary. Mm-hmm. That the divine feminine, so in, you know, in a Catholic Orthodox vocabulary, we're talking about Mary, not simply mm-hmm. the, the Jewish uh, woman who gave birth to Jesus, but Mary as a divine archetype, as Theotokos, mm-hmm. the mother of God and co-creatrix mm-hmm. with God, according to, I think Pope Benedict called her that. That archetypal power, that archetypal image. I really envy that. When, <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Keep going. So, well, <laughs> now I'm interviewing you, but sure, I could <laughs> I could go ahead and talk the whole time. I don't I don't really need a guest. I just need to do this. But but Mary is missing in Protestantism to a great degree, not completely, but to a great degree. You don't get that rich Marian culture. And one last thing I would say about it, there's no our guy of Guadalupe, right? <laughs> Jesus only manifests in a slice of pizza once in a while and a piece of toast. But these powerful incarnations like Our Lady of Guadalupe, they're always Mary. Why do you think that is? And why doesn't it have a place in mainstream churches? Well, because everything too Catholic or potentially too, what, idolatrous or too human slash divine got got pitched at the Reformation, though she's coming back. I think <laughs> she Beverly, is. Yeah, Beverly Gaventa, I think. I should have done better research, but has written a book on Mary uh, for Protestants. And you just mentioned Mary of Guadalupe, and I was just at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, where the twin Marys are together, uh, Guadalupe on top of the grotto of Mary of Lourdes, Kali was featured recently as coming back to America <laughs> with a vengeance to teach us about, you know, the dark mother. Gaia, you know, as the feminine, certainly is gaining ferocious energy. So all I've noticed, I don't have a why, I just have a what. I'm kind of a noticer. So what I notice is the feminine is coming back in everything from the Me Too movement to spiritual communities where the the feminine has been missed for too long. And and maybe because she's been missed for so long in Protestantism, she cannot come back as divine, but she will not be suppressed. She won't be ignored. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. 
experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right that she is making a comeback as the divine feminine archetypes in, in different traditions are all making a comeback, even in, in Judaism, which mm-hmm. you would think is so patriarchal and, you know, with an image of God that seems to be on the surface and in the liturgy so masculine. And mm-hmm. yet there is this rich wisdom tradition where the divine manifests as Chachma, Sophia, Lady Wisdom. So... Yeah, something is definitely happening, and I think it is a reflection of our time. And it's going to be Kali-like in that it's going to be mm-hmm. a a new birth, but preceded by a dark night of human civilization. There has to be a death. There has to be, to use Christian language, a crucifixion before the resurrection. And we are heading to Golgotha. We are heading to that crucifixion as a civilization or as a species. But mm-hmm. I, I think the mother is is returning. It's a very powerful and redemptive return. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'm completely with you on that. And if we were talking psychology instead of spirituality, we'd talk about the force with which the repressed re-emerges. You know, mm-hmm. so if it's volcanic, it's because there's been too much hardened stone over the lava for too long. Yeah, and it's it's going to crack big time, mm-hmm. and that scares people. I think that's explains a lot of what's happening politically is that, whoa, I need big daddy. You know, I need, I need, you know, George Lakoff's strict father religion and strict father morality just as a bulwark against the amazing grace. Oh, that's really trite. I didn't mean to say it that way, but the amazing grace that is going to be this, uh, the searing love of the return of the mother. Right, right, right. So, now that we agree with me, <laughs> yes, yes. I want, if, if you got a copy of the book with you, I'd like to read, have you read just two short sections. The first one's on page 213. It's the first real paragraph on the page, I Asked God. Can you just read that paragraph to us? Yeah, it makes me so sad to read a book because I can think of how it could be better. All right, here we go. I asked God for religious certainty and God gave me relationships instead. I asked for solid ground, and God gave me human beings instead. Strange, funny, compelling, complicated human beings who keep puncturing my stereotypes, challenging my ideas, and upsetting my ideas about God so that they are always under construction. I may yet find the answer to all my questions in a church, a book, a theology, or a practice of prayer, but I hope not. I hope God is going to keep coming to me and authentically human beings who shake my foundations, freeing me to go deeper into the mystery of why we are all here. Yeah, I loved that passage. And I'm, if you can make it better, fine, you can do that in another printing. <laughs> it seems perfect to me. So I think most people would want that solid ground, would want that certainty. And, you know, what they get is reality. Mm. One of the most important books of the Bible to me, if not the most important. I think number one is the book of Ecclesiastes. Number two is the book of Job. Mm -hmm. And then I think number three might be John. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it, the very nature of reality, reflecting the opening 
verses in Genesis too, the very nature of reality is what the Bible calls hevel or chaos, impermanence. There's no certainty. There's no surety. One of my teachers calls life playing ball on running water. (laughs) It's just this completely fluid and uncontrollable experience. And that to me, and I'm at, this is a question. To me, that is essential to spirituality. If we had certainty, we wouldn't need God. You wouldn't need religion. You wouldn't need any of this spiritual stuff. So what do you think about that? How, how vital is our not knowing to spirituality? Well, of course, vital. And when you said something about wanting solid ground, who doesn't? I, I do think, though, in sort of fashion, you will recognize that it's the longing for solid ground that makes the running water so painful. And if I could learn to make my home on running water, <laughs> I would suffer less. I'd be less miserable. So the presence of the two in my life and in my desire has been important to me, um, though I'm now you know, approaching 70 and good luck with solid ground because I've not found that a matchup with real life in any way, though I will probably never give up belonging for some trustworthy, safe place. But in my life, the only thing that's kept me alive while I'm alive is the running water. It's brought me more than I ever would have thought to expect. It's brought me more grief, more joy, more love, more death, more everything. So I hope I have the good sense to um, uh, learn to walk. Shall we say on water, Rami? Let's learn to walk on running water. <laughs> Sounds good to me. You know, that That's why I like the end of the book of Job as uh, Stephen Mitchell translates it, where it's not, I mean, traditionally it says, Job says, I repent and I you know, he's covers himself in dust and ash and he's nothing. And it's a, it's a very self-deprecating uh, picture. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Hebrew, and he backs it up with solid Hebrew scholarship, where Job is re- what Job is really saying is, I find comfort mm-hmm. in, being, in being dust and ash. Uh-huh. Not that I'm covering myself in dust and ash and repenting. The reality of being nothing or part of the great happening Job says, I find that comforting. I find that comforting. I really, I'm not looking for any kind of certainty or surety. Mm-hmm. Every time I think I find it, I think the Divine Mother pulls it out from, from under me. <laughs> so, and we're both approaching 70. Yeah. And I think I'm too old to think that this is ever going to change. But you never know, right? Because it's all fluid. I, I want to ask you one last thing because we're going to run out of time. Mm-hmm. You quote from our teacher, Houston Smith, on page 203. I guess if you could just read the Houston Smith quote. Oh, the beginning of that chapter called The Final Exam. So, quote, quote from Houston Smith. So what do we do? This is our final question. Whether religion is for us a good word or bad, whether, if on balance, it's a good word, we side with a single religious tradition or to some degree open our arms to all, How do we comport ourselves in a pluralistic world that is riven by ideologies, some sacred, some profane? We listen. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So so do I. And and I'm assuming that's why it's in the book. So what is it about listening that makes it maybe the practice for our time? 
It's the only hope of my transformation. I hope that's not too dramatic. But if I don't listen, I'll just keep thinking what I think and saying what I say. And it's only when I am quiet and listen, especially when what I'm hearing disturbs me, upsets me, uh, knocks me off balance. Then I've got a chance to be new. Then I've got a chance to be changed. So um, as we've just been saying, listening has brought me a lot more than talking has in my life, which is a problem for someone who talks for a living. But there you have it. <laughs> yeah. And I tell you what, listening to you is part of the the practice, you know, but not because you're upsetting, but because you really are, at least in my case, you know, pointing toward that place of not knowing Oh, maybe I actually, we can end with this. Maybe I actually have holy envy for the not knowing. Oh, that's a wonderful place to end. Then that's where we're going to end. Our guest today, Barbara Brown Taylor, is the author of Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. A review of Holy Envy appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Barbara, it was so nice talking to you on Essential Conversations. Thanks. Thank you, Rami. Take care. If you want to learn more about Barbara's work, you can check out her website, barbarabrowntaylor.com. Support for this show comes from the International Yoga Festival, uniting yogis of every color, culture, and creed in a one-world yogic family. Come be a part of an expanding global consciousness by registering at internationalyogafestival.org slash register. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like the show, I urge you to check out my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge, brought to you by the One River Foundation. Conversations on the Edge features a variety of iconoclasts, apostates, and freethinkers who are trying to change the world for the better. Also, please be sure to rate and review this podcast in iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.